There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kremitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast with Greg and Colin. And Greg, it's 2024. It's been that for, I guess, a couple of weeks now. Do you say 2024 or 2024? I was thinking about it the other day. Do you say a 2-4? Well, you could. What you used to call a case of beer back in the day? Right on. Can you say that on podcast? I think beer is okay to say. <laughs> beer. It should be. Well, speaking of beer and 2-4s and things like that, last week we talked about National Quitters Day, which was that famous day about two weeks into the calendar year when most resolutions go away. It's kind of scary. I avoided having to quit resolutions by not making any this year, so I think I'm going to be okay. That's one way of doing it. Kind of like avoiding the gym by not having a membership. Is that what you're saying? Right on. That's good. Okay, well, today we're going to go a completely different path. We're going to flex your muscles as your master's of science degree in genetics, and you're going to talk about something sort of different, but sort of aligned to. Exactly. What is it? So we're going to, as you mentioned, take a little diversion into the world of science and healthcare. So I might be getting a little science-y in parts of this discussion. You do have a master's degree in science. But hopefully it'll be interesting. And it may take a little while after the, you know, sort of introduction to see exactly how this ties into our usual topics of investing. But I hope it becomes clear as we go. So as you mentioned, this subject does hold a particular interest for me since it concerns genetics, a subject I studied in university a million years ago, and a science that's moved so far beyond me that I can remain fascinated by it, but only as an outsider. It's pretty advanced stuff and way more advanced than what I was doing, as I say, millions of years ago. But today I really wanted to talk about something that I consider a milestone in medical technology, and that occurred just last month, December 2023, or 2023, or let's just say December 23. 23. Last month, the FDA in the U.S., that's the Food and Drug Administration that approves pharmaceutical and healthcare technologies and treatments, they approved the first gene editing-based treatment for a disease, and that disease was a sickle cell disease, or some people call it sickle cell anemia. This is quite a breakthrough, and I'll just maybe do a little bit of background so people will understand why this is such a breakthrough. So first of all, what is sickle cell disease? Because this is what's being treated. Sickle cell disease is a group of inherited blood disorders. It affects about 100,000 people in the U.S., most commonly in African Americans and less so, but it does also affect Hispanic Americans a little bit more frequently. And the primary problem with sickle cell disease is a mutation in hemoglobin. Hemoglobin, which most people have probably heard of, it's a protein that's found in red blood cells, and hemoglobin binds oxygen and delivers oxygen to the body's tissues and cells. Kind of important. The mutation causes red blood cells to develop this crescent or sickle shape, which is where the name comes from. And these sickled red blood cells restrict the flow of blood in vessels, 
and limits oxygen delivery to the body's tissues, and that can lead to severe pain and organ damage, which is called vasooclusive crisis or crises. And the recurrence of those kinds of events or crises can lead to life-threatening disabilities and or early death, but absolutely causes significant pain in people that have sickle cell disease. It's not a good disease. It's a bad disease. Well, most diseases aren't good diseases. Exactly. The thing that makes it interesting and treatable is that it's caused by a single point mutation in a gene called the hemoglobin beta gene that codes for the production of hemoglobin. So people probably know that genes are basically coded for in the body's DNA, which is in the chromosomes of the cells. And those genes, for the most part, direct the production of proteins. And again, this particular one is hemoglobin. So single point mutation in the gene for the hemoglobin beta. Along comes a therapy, which is called Casgevy, which is a cell-based gene therapy that was approved for the treatment of sickle cell disease in patients 12 years and older that have recurrent crises that I mentioned above. Casgevy, the first FDA-approved therapy utilizing something called CRISPR-Cas9, which is a type of genome editing technology that I'll dig into just a little bit in a minute. So what happens with this treatment is the patient's blood stem cells, which are just cells that are capable of becoming any other kind of cell in the body, those cells are modified by genome editing using this technology that I mentioned, CRISPR-Cas9. So what's CRISPR? What's Cas9? And first of all, let's just say that CRISPR does not refer to those delicious little crackers that are kind of a cross between a potato chip and a cracker. I'm not sure if you've they are delicious. experienced those. Fabulous. They're crispy. They are. That's not what I'm talking about. CRISPR, which is C-R-I-S-P-R, stands for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats. Which is not the same thing that we usually talk about, which would be the CRISP index. Exactly. Which is the Center for Research in Securities Pricing. Correct. So normally we're talking about asset allocation and diversification, stocks, bonds, market timing, whatever. Today you're talking about a different CRISPR. That's right. There won't be a test on this, but the repeats, the regularly interspaced palindromic repeats are sections of DNA that are found in bacteria. And what they are is they're actually copies of small pieces of viruses. So bacteria use them, consider it kind of almost like a collection of mugshots to identify bad viruses because bacteria can be attacked by viruses. Cas9 is an enzyme that can cut apart DNA. So bacteria, when they're infected by viruses, they fight off these viruses by sending this Cas9 enzyme to chop up the viruses that have a mugshot in the collection. So when the bacteria is infected by a virus, the bacteria recognizes the virus DNA, sends in the Cas9 enzyme, which chops up the virus DNA and prevents it from infecting the bacterial cell. So scientists figured out how bacteria do this a long time ago, over 12, 13 years ago. And now in the lab, researchers have found a similar approach to what bacteria do to turn it into this tool that we're talking about now. So the CRISPR-Cas9 tool, again, first described in 2012, 2013, and labs around the world started using that after it was discovered and described to alter any kind of different organisms' genomes, genomes being the entire set of DNA 
and RNA that make up the cell. This episode reminds me a lot of my daughter's biology class so right far. Exactly. <laughs> this is bizarre, but I mean, this stuff, it's pretty amazing. Amazing that it could be identified and then used to actually treat genetic diseases. Basically, with this tool, the CRISPR and Cas9 tool, you can quickly and efficiently tweak almost any gene in any plant or animal. And researchers have already used it to fix genetic diseases in animals, to combat viruses, even to sterilize mosquitoes. They've used it to prepare pig organs for human transplants, which is something that's been done for a long time, and other things. But it's important because it allows scientists to rewrite the genetic code in almost any organism. It's simpler, cheaper, and more precise than previous gene editing techniques, and it has a huge range of real-world applications, including curing genetic diseases, and even things like creating drought-resistant crops. So lots of potential applications. So is this something that could be used in cancer research? Absolutely. Anything where there's a genetic basis for the disease, it can be used, presumably. So just a little background. CRISPR was discovered by Dr. Jennifer Doudna at UC Berkeley and Dr. Emmanuel Charpentier, who was at the Max Planck Unit for the Science of Pathogens in Berlin. They had a groundbreaking paper revealing that the CRISPR-Cas9 bacterial immune system could be repurposed as a gene editing tool, published back in 2012. And then in 2020, well after that technique had been adopted in labs around the world. Doudna and Charpentier won the Nobel Prize in Chemistry for their discovery. And they were also, by the way, the first all-female team to do that kind of thing. Now, for an interesting read, this is interesting. There's a book that was written by Walter Isaacson called Codebreaker, which really digs into the development of this whole breakthrough and techniques and resulting in the Nobel Prize for those two women. And Walter Isaacson, just for interest's sake, he also wrote biographies on Steve Jobs and most recently Elon Musk. I understand it's an excellent book. I haven't read it yet, but if anyone's interested, they are very interesting biographies to read. Walter Isaacson, Codebreaker. Back to sickle cell disease. With the treatment, the patient's blood stem cells are modified by genome editing, as I mentioned, using CRISPR-Cas9 technology and the modified blood stem cells are transplanted back into the patient where they attach and multiply within the bone marrow. They increase the production of fetal hemoglobin, which is a type of hemoglobin that facilitates oxygen delivery. And in patients with sickle cell disease, the increased levels of fetal hemoglobin prevents the sickling of red blood cells. So essentially, this technique has been used to now treat sickle cell disease, approved by the FDA in December. And so far, it only costs about $2 million per treatment. Only. However, the good news is the treatment is permanent. So once patients go through a relatively grueling procedure to have the bone marrow sort of and stem cells treated and reinserted, it is a permanent treatment. The new technique that the FDA just approved was developed by a publicly traded company, surprisingly called CRISPR Therapeutics which was founded by one of the Nobel winners, Emmanuel Charpentier. That was in conjunction with a large U.S. biotechnology company called Vertex Pharmaceuticals. Why am I telling you all this? I don't know. Me neither. The good news is we've just covered off, you know, the whole CRISPR story in about 11 minutes, so that's pretty good. I guess I'm telling you this because, you know, I find it quite interesting, and because it's our podcast, I can do whatever I want. Within reason. But aside from that... <laughs> 
I'm going to tie this back now to what most people are expecting to hear about. When I read Codebreaker, my initial reaction was, man, they've mentioned all of these companies, publicly traded companies in many cases, that are using CRISPR technology. And it just seemed like such a breakthrough technology that could have applications for so many genetic diseases and things. I have got to invest in those companies. And that's the mind frame that most people experience when they learn about something new and exciting. So all of us have read articles of interest or information about new technologies that we think, oh man, that's going to be awesome. That's going to take over the world, etc. But in that, are we actually recommending people rush off and buy shares in CRISPR therapeutics or Vertex pharmaceuticals? Probably not. No, we are not. And why not? Because while these innovations are extremely exciting, the time frame from birth of an idea to commercialization can be extremely long, and that's particularly true in healthcare. So when you look at Casgevy treatment for sickle cell disease, that was absolutely incredibly fast. I mean, the company itself, CRISPR, was founded in 2013, and the treatment was approved in 2023, so 10 years later. And that's incredibly fast for not only a new technology, but to get through all of the requirements for FDA approval for new drugs and treatments and things like that. Very long time frame. Very short time frame. A short time frame for, in this particular case, and typically long time frame for new drugs and things like that. So, okay, well, so maybe we don't buy shares of an individual company like Vertex or CRISPR Therapeutics. What about buying a sector ETF? Let's say one that invests in a whole number of genomics companies, of which there are many, with the hope that one or more of the companies becomes clinically successful. It would certainly be more diversified than investing in a single company. True? But here's the thing. Gene editing and genomics, which I find fascinating, are just one aspect of recent breakthroughs in medical technology that could translate into significant stock price appreciation for many, many companies. So now, because it's our podcast, I'm just going to take a look at a few other technological innovations in healthcare that we can expect over the next five to 10 years. My point being there are some very exciting things outside of genomics that are happening. For example mRNA technology that was used to develop the COVID vaccines in record time. And we're talking, I think, what was it, about a year from COVID appearing to actually having an mRNA vaccine? Well, I mean, there's lots of people that say that that work was done over a 10-year period up to COVID. That's right. It took a long time to develop the technology. And once the technology was there, it very rapidly was used to create new vaccines. Here we are talking about genetics again. MRNA can code for just about any protein. The same basic technology might allow us to develop all kinds of treatments by getting the body to produce a drug-like response rather than having to develop drugs and antibodies made outside the body. So MRNA technology could certainly speed up development times and cut costs by getting the human body to work on manufacturing proteins directly. So huge opportunities there. Virtual reality has been around for some time now, but it's becoming increasingly used to treat and manage a wide range of psychological illnesses and conditions from stress and anxiety to dementia and autism. But its capabilities are actually not just limited to mental health conditions. It's being used for effective pain management by changing patients' thoughts and perceptions around pain. And it's also been used, as you can imagine, to improve the training processes for medical professionals because they can use virtual reality basically to be transported into the human body. It can help doctors diagnose diseases. 
they can do practices, practice surgeries by using virtual reality before actually doing a real surgery. I mean, there's all kinds of applications for virtual reality outside of the medical profession. I recently was reading about how they're going to use virtual reality in remote locations to fix a broken down vehicle. Sure. Because you can just watch it in front of you. Absolutely. It'll show you how to do it. That's the point. I mean, and what we're talking about are new technologies. Of course, I'm focused right now on medical technologies, but these technologies are extremely wide ranging and have broad application. Neurotechnology has a massive potential to improve lots of aspects of life. Neurotechnology is currently being used in brain imaging, neurostimulation, stimulating the brain and nervous system to influence brain activity, and in neurodevices that monitor or regulate brain activity with implants. In fact, Elon Musk started a company. You've heard of Elon Musk. We mentioned him earlier. He's crazy. Possibly. <laughs> that's an opinion, right? I don't think that's, that's my been, opinion. I don't think that's been proven. He started a company back in 2016 called Neuralink, which is really focused on developing implantable brain computer interfaces. Another area with a lot of attention. Artificial intelligence. Well, this has certainly turned into one of the most talked about new technologies over the last year, but it's got huge application in the area of healthcare. I think it's got a huge application in every field. Every time I turn around, AI is in your face about everything, whether it's stock picking, personal training habits, or nutrition, or... For sure. Whatever. Some of the areas where it's being used in healthcare is confirming accurate diagnoses faster. You can basically train AI. It can look at hundreds of thousands of radiographs and images. And right now it's being used to review mammograms 30 times faster 99% accuracy, so diagnosing breast cancer and things like that much more quickly. It's being used to oversee early-stage heart disease and allowing healthcare providers to discover some potentially life-threatening problems earlier than would have. And also drug research and discovery is one of the more recent applications for AI. So massive opportunity for AI in healthcare. 3D printers have become one of the hottest technologies in the market. These 3D printers can be used to create implants and even joints to be used during surgery. 3D printed prosthetics are increasingly popular. They can use the digital functionality to match an individual's measurements down to the millimeter. This allows for unprecedented levels of comfort and mobility. I'm looking forward to that because I'm pretty sure I could use a knee or two. Well, and it I would can, be nice if they could use 3D printing to make those for me. I can tell you from my experience of having two hips done, when I had my first hip done, I noticed that my one leg was longer than the other one. This seems to have evened out when I had my second hip done. Ah, oh, there you go. Because <laughs> <laughs> you are just talking about millimeters. That's right. But it does make a difference. For sure. So huge opportunities in other areas outside of gene editing. There's lots of other promising technology in the areas of precision medicine, health wearables, you know, like everybody's got a Fitbit or an Apple Watch right now and now those are being used not only just to measure your pulse, but they can do heart scans, ECGs, and things like that. So wearables are becoming a big factor in health, telemedicine, and things like that. So lots of new technologies that are hitting us in the healthcare area. Okay, so let's bring this home. So after yakking about genetics and gene editing and CRISPR, there's a couple of points I'd like to make. Are these investment points? These are investment points. Thank God. 
I know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's, so next week you can talk about something that's of interest to you. I'm just like, joking. Uh, I don't know what like hockey and pizza. <laughs> Well, that's, that's, you're really making assumptions here, Kraminski. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Okay, what are your two points? First of all, as Canadians, we have to invest globally. So in Canada, the healthcare sector represents 0.4% of the TSX Composite Index, 0.4. It is an insignificant portion of our Canadian market index. It's a rounding error. That's right. That's all it is. So compare this to the S&P 500 or the Russell 3000, where healthcare is about 12.5% of the index. In the MSCI EFA index, EFA referring to essentially all of the developed markets outside of North America, about 12.8%. And in fact, if you look at the EFA index itself, healthcare stocks represent or account for about four of the top 10 holdings. In our last episodes, we talked about weight loss drugs. And there's Novo Novo Nordisk, yeah, the Danish company. The point was that it was the highest producing stock return, which led that total stock market. Exactly. And it's the number one holding in the EFA index. So healthcare is a significant part of most indexes other than the Canadian index. Doesn't that just point out the inefficiencies of the Canadian market, the Canadian index that were so weighted towards banks, utilities, and energy, mining and materials? Yeah. We have a very concentrated market that does not give us the exposure to many of these new technologies that are, I don't know, exciting. If the healthcare sector represents just 0.4% of the TSX and the Canadian market only represents 3% of the world. It's insignificant. It's like so insignificant. So point one, we need to invest globally. Point two You can get exposure to all of these breakthrough type of companies and technologies simply by buying the broad indexes or investing in similarly diversified mutual funds. So let's look at the S&P 500 index, for example. Apple is the largest constituent, as we've discussed in the past. And the Magnificent Seven, the seven biggest stocks right now, which all happen to be technology stocks, represent about 20% of the index and have accounted for much of last year's gains. And so a lot of people have talked about that as being, well, that's negative. Gee, if it wasn't for those seven stocks, the S&P 500 would not have had such a good return last year, which I think ended the year up about, I don't know, 24% or something. But I think the point is not that, oh, well, these companies just gotten too big. The point is that these were small companies once, and they became large companies, and they became drivers of the return of the index. And the same thing will happen with new technologies, whether it's healthcare or other communications technologies, et cetera. Apple was added to the S&P 500 index back in November of 1982. Surprised me. I thought it was later than that, actually, but 1982. I would have thought it would be like in the 90s at least. And at that time it was added, the stock traded at a split adjusted price, meaning the stock has split numerous times since it was added to the index. So if you looked at just based on today's price of, I don't know, $184 or something, back in 1982, it was trading at about 10.6 cents. Hmm. Penny stock. So people are going to say, wow, can you imagine if you could have just bought Apple? Never mind the index. What if you could just bought Apple at 10.6 cents in 1982? Just think how much money you'd have today. Well, here's the problem. In November of 2002, 20 years later, the stock was trading at 23 cents, which gives you an annualized gain of about a little under 4% per year over a 20-year period. 
So there's a very good chance that somebody who bought Apple in 1982 might not have continued to hold it. They might have said, why am I holding on to this thing? I get 4% a year. I could have done that in money market funds or whatever. And so a lot of people might not have continued to hold it. But three years after 2002, the stock had gone from 23 cents to a dollar. That's four times, four bagger. And 20 years later, it's now grown to $184, 30% per year. So my point is, you didn't need to own Apple directly to benefit from its growth. You just needed to own the index. In doing that, you also benefited from the growth of other companies, which started small and grew dramatically. So for example, you know, the big seven or the magnificent seven include Apple, which I mentioned, Amazon added in 2005, Microsoft 1994, Alphabet 2006, Netflix 2010, NVIDIA 2001. Who had talked about NVIDIA until this year when NVIDIA became the main driver behind artificial intelligence chips? And then there's Tesla added to the index in December of 2020, just three years ago. And so, again, the point being, all of these companies, all of these new technologies start as small companies, and they grow and they develop technologies that are beneficial for the world, and they become big companies. And the only way to make sure you own them all is to own a very diversified portfolio. So we're talking about not the S&P 500 necessarily, but the Russell 3000, for example, the IFA index, and as broad and diverse portfolios as you can. And then all of these technologies are going to be in our portfolios going forward. So that's it. That's my story, and I'm sticking with it. No, it's a good one. You know, it started off very science-based, of course, very heavy into the science. But I like the story because it's relatable. I dwelled on the science of CRISPR-Cas9 a little bit only because the fact that this new treatment was approved by the FDA, the first of its kind, in December— just means that we can expect to see a lot more application of that technology to other disease situations and things in the future. So I find it interesting. And so hopefully some other people do as well. That was a good one. Thanks for doing that. My pleasure. All right. Well, what are we going to do next week? I don't know. What are we going to follow this with? I don't know. We'll have to look for something different. We could talk about CRISP. CRISP. The Center for Research into Securities Prices. Crisp versus CRISPR. Exactly. Versus crackers. Right on. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Until next time. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2023.